What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. Hey gang, quick bit of housekeeping for you before we start the show. And this is only relevant to those years. Listen to us on the Apple Podcasts app or via Apple. So if you don't move along, as the great Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, nothing to see here. But if you do listen to us via Apple, listen carefully, particularly if you're an old school listener of the show. Before we became the Nat Coombs show on ESPN, when we were the NFL show, you would have got the show updated when we moved without having to do a thing. But that's because the old show had a divert put on it. So to check, you'll subscribe to the new feed because the old one is going to go pretty soon. Check out the Nat Coombs show. Search for it on the app via the podcast browse section or the store section if you're looking on the desktop and find our show and see if it shows whether you're subscribed or not. If you are, great, you're on the right feed. If you're not, hit subscribe and delete the old one. So head on over, not in your library, but actually onto Apple. Search the Nat Coombs show. Make sure you're subscribed to the feed that you find. Simple. Good luck. Hello and welcome to the Nat Coombs Show here on ESPN. Bonus pod time. Very, very happy to have Stig Abel joining the show, making his debut on this pod anyway. But I've known him for a fair while. A lot of you will know him from his work as the presenter of Front Row on Radio 4. He also edits the Times Literary Supplement. So we put two and two together and miraculously for once came up with the right number and thought, who better to help compile a list of books to feed your mind during these lockdown times than stick. Uh, we are concentrating not specifically on NFL, although obviously there are one or two there, but American sports more broadly. So coming up over the next 30, 40 minutes, Stig and I will be kicking around some of the best books that you can read over the coming weeks and months to keep you busy and keep you occupied. Hope you enjoy. Steve, great to have you on the show. Uh, long time no speak. How's life? Well, it's a it's a funny old time, uh, isn't it? It's lovely to, to 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 speak to you. It's lovely to talk a bit of American football. I'm living in a house with my wife who likes no sport at all, uh, <laughs> and three children under the age of eleven, none of whom really like American sports or what? even sport that much. I, I You've know. Got to get... I've tried. Come on, man. That's I mean. I don't want to be those one of those dads, though, Now I don't want to be one of those dads that forces kids to like the things that they like. Is that a pop at me? <laughs> I'm subtweeting you right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's fair enough. I mean, in, in with my kids, I gave them the option of, of being West Ham fans because we live in Arsenal country, essentially. So I said, look, guys, you don't have to do this. You can, you can pick the easier ride. There'll be a lot more, a lot more happiness for you down the line. But they, they held firm and I was proud of them for that. But I did, I did give, I didn't force the team on them. Um, but it's an, it's an interesting point because my, my two, uh, certainly out of all American sports, NFL, an NBA by far they're most interested in. Um, and they're kind of split actually at one likes the NFL much more than the other and the other likes the NBA more, more than the other. But what age did you first get into, to American sports? You were, you were, we're the same sort of generation, right? So yeah, I'm, well, I'm, of the 40, 80s. Yeah, I'm 40 on Good Friday. So I don't well, I think happy I'm, birthday. Probably, I'm probably slightly older than you. Is that right? Happy birthday. Uh, I, I, I broadcaster never discusses his age. Surely, Stig, that's, what are you, what, what are you doing out there? I don't know. Dad is 33, 34. Bless your heart. I know I, I look far worse than that. So 
Um, what happened to me was my dad worked for an American company called 3M, which is Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. So it's a Minnesotan company. Um, and so when I was a kid, so I was born in 1980. So in the 80s, that was the great rise of Channel 4 NFL. So the great sort of Chicago Bears, Miami Dolphins period where everyone in Britain watched a bit of Channel 4 and got into it that way. And so and because my dad worked for an American company, he would occasionally go to America and come back and give us like an American football or jerseys. Um, and that got me interested in it. And then when I was in my teenage years, Channel 5, of course, that's where I first came across you, I think. Uh, but Channel 5 started showing late nights, baseball, yep. uh, baseball and American uh, and basketball. And yeah, I had hockey actually. as well. Yeah, at hockey. Yeah. It's the whole, the I've always, four. Yeah, I've struggled with hockey all my life, actually. It's the one I've never quite clicked with. But have you been to a live game? Been to a live hockey game? I never have. I never yeah, have. I never that have. does change it because I'm the same as you. You know, I, I, God, I love actually every sport ever. But I mean, it, yeah, if I, there's a big jump for me between, between those three uh, and hockey. But go, Greg Brady actually took me to a game, my first game, a couple of Super Bowls ago when we were in Minnesota. And you got to do it. You got to do it. It's, it's great. So even if you're really? not, if, if you're out yeah. there and you're not a hockey fan, yeah. Go, just still go and do it. Just go and do it. It's really, it's, it's one of those sports I think you have to see up close and personal. So hockey didn't yeah. do it for you, but the other three, other three did? They did. And the other thing that I, the biggest influence, one of the biggest influence on my sporting consumption was I then relatively early on discovered Bill Simmons, the mm. American writer who had a column on ESPN when I found him. Then of course he went to, uh, Grantland and then he went to the ringer. Yeah. And, uh, I read a lot, and so I got into, so my, my, I've always supported Minnesotan teams because of my dad, um, and so Vikings, Twins, Timberwolves. Um, but because of Bill Simmons, I sort of vaguely took on a, on an interest in the Boston teams because that was my major connecting point and, uh, the Celtics, uh, and the Patriots. So I kind of have a, a sort of nod towards them. I've always had an interest in them. And I find generally actually that writing book, you know, reading books is a, is a great way. And baseball particularly, I think, has great mm. writing associated with it. Um, and the thing I've always loved, I, mean, I don't know if it's the same with you, I've just l- always loved that combination of American sports, which is somewhere pitched between exoticism, it's a country I don't live in, and familiarity in that it's a very similar country in lots of ways. So it looks in both directions, American sports to me. And I find it a very relaxing, de-stressing thing that I can get transported to another continent and, and the world is different there but it's familiar enough uh at, to, to, to keep me going so i've i've been immersing myself in american sport properly really since my teenage years and in the last 20 years you know I, there's not a day go by that goes by where i don't look at the espn website i don't read a book about baseball or i watch a watch a game and or listen to a game or something like that well, this is it compared to the, you know, when we were kids and the limited access that, that we had, that is, you know, one of the, the real advantages, you know, for, for, for us now and, and obviously the generation coming through that I, the. I totally agree. I totally, the other thing that occurs to me is the baseball app, the MLB app. I think, yeah. I just think it's one of the great pieces of kit that's out there that I basically can watch any game, you know, thousands of games a year. I can listen to two different radio stations for it or watch or watch uh, the, the, the actual game live. I can watch the highlights. I can watch uh, condensed games all off my phone. It's ridiculous, really, when you pause yeah. to think about it. it it's, such a, it's, such, and it's such a beautifully constructed app. It really works. And I find that um, 
that's the best one. I've never, because I think with baseball, funnily enough, I could, late at night, I quite like listening to games. With the NFL, I can live with what's available on Sky because it's, it's, it's quite a commitment watching an NFL game. I find more so than baseball. I, Baseball's quite a bit like cricket. You can have it on the back. Very much. Um, you can have it on the back. There, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And exactly. And you know, radio is, it's a great point you make. Obviously, obviously, you know, baseball, particularly, I guess, in its most powerful era was very much a radio sport. It's still for me, very much a sport that, that works to this day on radio in the sense that if I had the option, uh, you know, you talk about the at bat app and if I had the option, if I'm doing some work and I want some baseball on in the background of, of having a broadcast of it or having the radio uh, broadcast, I suppose the TV, uh, particularly when it was Vin Scully, um, you know, I, I, I'd often go for, for radio. And I think it's, um, it's interesting. You make a great point about why so many Brits f- fall in love with American sports. I think that's so accurate. And, but even, you know, when I kind of connect the points there that looking at when we were growing up, I remember Super Bowls when I wasn't allowed to stay up because I was a kid and had to go to bed and, uh, and digging out a radio and getting American Forces Network on to get the broadcast of the Super Bowl yeah. under the covers, kind of fading in and out. So I think that connection with those formative years and whatever you could get your hands on, uh, and, and now you, you know, that's why I guess I, I kind of mix it up. Just quickly before we, uh, before we get into the, the main reason, you know, why, uh, we're, we're here today. And I thought no one better than you to, to go through sporting literature particularly right now given the fact there's there's so much at the moment that is challenging uh, us all mentally and and so the need for distraction is 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 really important and also the fact that a number of people have plenty of time on their hands to be able to uh, to to look into an area that perhaps the pace of life and the speed of normal life prohibits so we'll we'll get into you put a a, a list of books together that we're going to recommend covering all, all american sports not just not just NFL, but I'm, I'm intrigued as well. Just going back to a point you made about your dad going over and bringing stuff back. Cause I was the same. I remember my dad bringing back. Um, and I think this triggered it all. In fact, uh, a baseball glove and a baseball, which I'm actually holding in oh, the, the ball in my hand right now, the glove. I don't know what happened to it. It, it disappeared into the ether a long time ago. And I actually got a, a replica of it. Um, the same model, uh, and everything that my wife bought for me. Uh, a few Christmases back, but the ball is still going strong all these years later. Brought it back from New York when I was eight, I think, eight or nine. Um, and that was really significant. What merch did you get brought back? Do you still have it? Is it yeah, with I, that I, Minnesota stuff? Is that why your, your team Minnesota? Tell us more about the, the, the old school merch. Okay, well, there's two things. One, my dad is not going to be happy I'm going to say this, but so one day week he came back from being in America and he brought us a Chicago Bears jersey and the Miami Dolphins jersey. And we were so right. thrilled. This is from America, so exotic. Yes. And a couple of years later, I found that he'd forgotten to get us anything. And so he went to a factory outlet in a town near where we lived in Shepshire. <laughs> a village in Shepshire. I'm from Loughborough. Amazing. Uh, and, he, and he bought them there on the cheap. So we thought, that, we, we thought so I think my first experience of, of great exotic Americana was from a from a factory out in, in Shepshire <laughs> near where I'm from. Oh, uh, but the other th- but we love them. And then we actually went mm. to America when I was when I was eight. And we went to uh Florida and Minnesota and Toronto actually. We, had, we were there for sort of, uh, three weeks because he was working a bit, I think. Um and I remember going to uh to to the tower above the Toronto uh ballpark. I don't know if it's still there. There's a giant there's a giant tower that we remember looking down on the ballpark and then we're going to various parks and we bought a glove and a bat and a ball 
and I've my kids still have the glove. This was really '98, so they still have that and the bat and the ball. And it was signed by Kirby Puckett, which was the great Minnesota outfielder. I mean, in, in Minnesota, he's he's regarded as, a, as 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 basically the top three twin ever, maybe even the top one, depending on what people feel about Joe Maurer. Um, and so I've all got, I've still got all that stuff. And I remember actually it was very hot. And America, when I was a kid, was a country that was vastly different from the United Kingdom. One of the things that strikes me now is whenever I go back to America, America is much more similar. But in, in the 80s, there was no nice food. The food in Britain was kind of small and measly and rubbish. The TV was small and measly and rubbish, just a couple of channels. America kind of stood for largesse and, and yes. uh and the yes. sort of exuberance and generosity, you know, the food was tastier and the drinks were cold. I mean, iced water wasn't a thing in this country. You couldn't get it anywhere. Um, and obviously in America, you get it everywhere for free. So I remember just this sort of sensory explosion that when I went to America as a kid, which I t- associate in all forms. So, um, you know, um, Americana itself became vastly enticing to me. And sport is a huge, huge part of that. So, the, the ballparks that you see, the way they're covered. You know, I think journalism, sports journalism in America is much better American sport than it is in this country. I think commentating in America is better by a factor. Steady of, where this list goes. <laughs> yeah. Color commentating. Color anchoring, of course. Could this significantly better. <laughs> yeah, anchoring of podcasts. No, I'm not making that. No, but, uh, uh, but do you know what I mean? That there was, there was a, it just felt like my eyes were open to a completely oh, different completely. world. Completely. And I think that's, that, that's lingered with me a bit. I think that's, that's really, really seminal. And, and I wonder, I do wonder, and I, you know, I asked this question of, uh, as I said, the, the younger generation coming through now, if that in the world that we live in, where there is on the one hand, all this wonderful access and range of information and voice and opinion and all of that is is, is clearly a, a significant progression and, and, and enhancement at the same time i wonder whether because we are you know it's such a connected world now whether that element of mystique and mystery and uh, and just difference that you that you uh, eloquently described there is is less impactful now than, than it was when we when we were kids i, I don't know because you're right you know you you'd the the show would appear on TV. I mean, the NFL is is the perfect example of that, right? This show suddenly, for me, suddenly appeared on Channel Four one night. I never heard of it before. Never heard of. Didn't exactly. know what it was at all. Like, what is this? This is amazing. Um, and I was hooked straight away. You mentioned as well the American American sports writing, in particular, and that is uh, what we're gonna talk about. And you put a great list together, and I'm gonna sneak one or two in as well. And our listeners actually, we fired out on Twitter that you were coming on the show and uh, what you were going to be talking about. And lots of our listeners have suggested books they like as well. So maybe at the end, I'll wheel through a few and uh, throw some at you um, for your opinion on those as well. Also, Mike Carlson, who uh, uh, we yeah. uh, caught up with a couple of uh, couple of days ago, uh, he has given us a list of uh, three books of uh, sports fiction, which is uh, an unheralded genre, but he's uh, thrown three at us that I'm going to, I'm going to chuck it a bit later on for your lovely uh, wow. as well. Uh, he was keen for us to include those two. Before we look at the list and, and, and some of the books that you've selected, Steve, I'm interested in your opinion on why you think, or indeed, if you do think, but why I, I certainly think this, that you look at some of the, the giants of, of literature in the 20th century. Uh, so I'm thinking, obviously, Hemingway, uh, Philip Roth, 
uh, Norman Mailer, who is, is somebody I think you're going to talk about later as well. They're, all of whom, and, and I'm sure you can add to that list with many other examples, have uh, had a, a very strong affinity with at least one sport and, and often more. Um, and some of the books we're going to talk about, albeit most of them nonfiction, underpinning, I think, the, the value of the, the genre, there seems to be a certain disregard in certain art circles as to the cultural validity uh, and, and, and depth and heft uh, with sport. Do you think that's fair? Because it seems to me a kind of surprising contradiction that, that these great minds and so much great writing, and yet at the same time, there is a, a sneeriness and a, and a lack of regard in certain circles for, for, for as I say, the, the, the cultural significance of sport. I'm not, I think that's much more pronounced in this country than it is in America. I'm, I'm very struck by the notion of journalism as a writing trade the actual trade of, uh, of, of writing. America values journalism much higher than British people do. Because uh, mm. journalism in Britain is much more about muckraking, or that's the American term, uh, about story getting. American journalism, I think, is slightly more sedate and more based on style. And I think the sports writing, if you're a sports writer, it's a great job in America. It's a respectable job. Journalism you know, an awful lot of 20th century American literature came out of journalists. You know, Hemingway is the, is, is the classic example. But there's a whole list of people who began as journalists and became novelists. So actually, I think, you know, Mailer is, is probably uh, the best known for then straddling both, being an, a novelist and a writer in that sense, and also a, a sports writer. But, but the concept of being a sports writer I think in America is culturally significant. Bill Bryson's dad was a sports writer. I always mm. remember from the lost continent, that beautiful book of American travel writing he wrote. And it's a, it's a respectable, thoughtful, educated job. And I actually think that all of the people, you know, Updike wrote about golf, not always brilliantly, but he was, he was interested in, 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 in golf. I, I think it's hard to write brilliantly about sport because I suspect it's something that's both intensely personal and also universal. And if you think of other things like that, that I've come across, which is very hard to write well about, sex is very hard to write well about because it only happens to you, but it also happens to everyone. Drug taking is probably the same thing. It happens to some mm. people. It's both a universal, but it's also very particular. I wonder if sport is the same thing because you're aiming at a universality because everyone can see the same thing. But everyone brings different cultural baggage to a sport. Everyone brings different expectations and memories and associations. And therefore, it's quite hard to... I'm always very strict with English soccer, football. There are... I mean, David Peace wrote a great book about Brian Clough. There's not a great tradition of sports fiction in this country at all. And I think America, it's further progressed, probably. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Well, on, on that note, I'll kick things off because um, I've got a handful of books that I want to chuck in. But your list is the, is the main event. But seeing as it, we've kind of come to it this way, there is a brilliant book... Uh, by a terrific writer, uh, David Halberstam edits this book and it's the best American sports writing of the century. It's called the 20th century. Um, and it is, uh, a meaty tome as you'd imagine. And it is a collection of exactly that, the best, uh, sports writing, uh, from the 20th century. And it has got all kinds of characters in it from Hunter S. Thompson, yeah. uh, his piece on the Kentucky Derby, yeah. um, George Plimpton, uh, who wrote Paper Lion, which, uh, we were talking about in the show a few weeks ago, actually, which, uh, it's great uh is, book isn't it? It's a terrific book and, and really influential as well. Um, 
just so many. It's got Mailer in here as well. I mean, you name it, they are in here. A collection of, uh, and these are these are articles from everything from you know the New Yorker to Sports Illustrated. Uh, it's a br- brilliant collection. Halberstam is a terrific writer in his own right, um, and it is one of those books that you can understandably just dip in and out of Grantland Rice, who uh, the aforementioned Grantland was named after, is in here. I mean, it's everything from the earliest pieces, early twenties, all the way through to uh, all the way through to. Uh, the late nineties. So the best American sports writing of the century is what it's called. Uh, I think David Halberson, the editor of that. And I think that will be a really good showcase for what I'm talking about, which is this, I think sports writing in this country, and I'm not slagging off British sports writers because there are some very brilliant ones, but sports writing in Britain, I think is more about story and access and um, that aspect of it. Whereas I think in America, it's about the writing very often. Someone Mm. who's given an opportunity to write American also give a lot more space to, to journalism, so you can get five thousand, ten thousand word pieces much more regularly in America than you can in Britain. I think is that so change? Did, I mean, it's cha- it's a change, though, isn't it, Stig? Like you know, and Grantland was very much, uh, and I guess that that Simmons was doing this with the Ringer as well. But Grantland particularly was um, predicated on on a few things, but not least the the, the retention and the the maintenance of long form journalism. And if you look at what's happening with Sports Illustrated as well now, which is in you know real decline and. Uh, is there a is there a very real danger that this art form will be lost? I, I think that there are probably some outlets that still do it well. I mean, the New Yorker is is fairly stable. New York Times is pretty stable. Atlantic, but yeah, I mean, this is true of all journalism because it's so fragmented. It's so hard for it to make any money. Uh, people expect an awful lot for free. The idea of paying some very good writer to spend three months writing. 10,000 words. Now, the New Yorker might pay fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for that. There aren't many places that would pay that in the existence anymore. And mm. so I think, I think it will survive, but it will be, a, it'll, the, the pool will get much, much, much smaller, uh, I think. As, as, and that's true of all types of quality journalism, I think. Well, that actually link, uh, leads us neatly onto the first book, not in any particular order, but uh, one of the books that you want to talk about uh, by uh, John Feinstein, who or Feinstein, you say yeah. Stein, I say Stein. Uh, a season on the brink, uh, which was written in in the eighties, and he is a writer who uh, is prolific in a number of different books. I guess we could have put in, in the mix here, but a season on the brink. I mentioned and lead with this because uh, reading up on it, and you'll tell us all about it and and, and how it came to fruition, but. Uh, Feinstein certainly in terms of access is, it's been one of those uh, trailblazers, I think that is, has, um, demonstrated that access and, and in this instance, covering a single year, uh, and yeah. combining those two things has been often imitated, but also reading about how it came about. And Feinstein was a writer who, um, you know, was, was a journalist and, and, and that's how he was making his living said he knew he was probably going to take a hit on it. You know, he said, I'm going to take a, take a year out and I'll probably take a, a financial hit on doing this, but I knew that I'd end up with something significant and something special. So he was, um, you know, taking a bit of a gamble with this as well. So tell us, tell us about the first book uh, right. and I, I, why you've chosen it. And also, you're absolutely right to name him. I, I really like him. He wrote a great book called Next Man Up, which is about the NFL, uh, yeah. which, is, which is brilliant. And yeah, I mean, this is not an American idea, but I think they do it very well, the idea of the full season access. And you do get, this is, it's, it, it's, it's replicated in lots of different versions. The reason I think this is so good is, I didn't know, I got this book randomly. I just was looking for books about American sport and I just 
picked it at random almost. I knew nothing about Bob Knight, who was a very famous and much maligned, because he wasn't a very nice guy in lots of respects, coach of uh, the Indiana College basketball team. Uh, and he's very famous in America. He coached the 1984 Olympic team. Uh, he's famous for throwing chairs. Uh, he's very, very <laughs> man, man of his peer. He's a horrible guy. And, you know, he would do stuff like uh, one of the star players in this season that they that uh, Feinstein explains was, was brilliant and talented, but Knight thought he was soft. So he'd do things like put tampons in his locker. Uh, and you know, his, the, the way he talked was, 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 you know, would never be allowed now. But the reason this book's so engaging is, A, I think the college sports world in America is so removed from our own experience in this country. It yeah. is worth reading about it because it is absolutely fascinating. These kids who are unpaid but superstars uh, are treated like kids in some respect, but also treated like uh, adults in charge of a billion-dollar brand. Their lives, the way that they're expected to, to graduate from school very often, but also are often clearly incapable of doing that. So the level of corruption that surrounds them, um, this world that just exists, that doesn't exist anywhere in, in this country. If you are a star basketball player in college, it's all you do pretty much. Um, and that world is so heightened and uh, potentially toxic. Like I said, but also I imagine potentially the most invigorating thing and being a star college athlete in America to me must strike me as, you're 19 years old and you're playing an American football game in front of 100,000 people, which happens really regularly with, with college football or basketball. An entire city is living and breathing your every move because you're playing 60-odd games or 40-odd games or whatever it is. So there's, there's their opportunity to see you and care about you, particularly, I think, in, in, in the 80s, uh, where there weren't so, such a proliferation of, of sports on, uh, on option. And this is just a great... So the reason I love it, and the reason I think people should read it, is Bob Knight is a is a mad Svengali coach, and America is full of those. They're always interesting. You know, Bill Belichick, I think, is is, is probably the, the person that I would most like to to, to know more about because I think he's such a, such a fascinating character. But there's loads of them in in American sports these these sort of crazed, brilliant coaches who demand so much and conduct themselves in an extraordinary way. Uh, and so he's at the centre of the book. Feinstein's a great writer. His access was absolutely magnificent. He really was there for the whole season. Um, but to me, I think the reason it's worth it is, I think college sport in America is so removed from mm. our experience that it's worth getting into something beautifully written about it. And I would say this, is a, I mean, there'll be other great books about it that I, I never come across, but I think this is a good combination of great journalist, great subject in the sense of the college sport and great subjects in the sense of, of, of Bob Knight. Access is, um, uh, you know, is uh, really, really important for this type of book. And as you say, Feinstein, you mentioned the Next Man Up book, uh, which is the Ravens and uh, that Aussie Newsom era of, of the Ravens. Yeah. And uh, also a, he's got a book called A Good Walk Spoiled. Uh, and I'm not a huge golf fan particularly. I'll always find time to watch the masters because that is uh back to our original chat that was a kind of magical thing that also appeared as a kid like what is this this is also yeah. incredible um but i'm not a huge golf fan but that is a really interesting book as well where he just follows the pga tour around him um so he's uh you know very uh you know, prolific in, in terms of securing subjects and access to to create a complete picture for sure and yeah. you're absolutely right the college the college world is fascinating and particularly in those cities or uh states where there isn't uh 
a pro team or not many pro teams. So you think about uh, Alabama or um, yeah. if, if, with um, with the this book is it Indiana? Did you say the? Yes, yes, yes. It's the Indiana. It's Indiana. The college so, team. I mean, in basketball is everything in Indiana, right? So yeah, they've got the culture, but Indiana is is a basketball state. So those states in particular. Uh, it, it's incredible the, the impact of, uh, and the significance of college sports and college stars. So, yeah. Um, I also think, by the way, that the Aussie Newsome Ravens are a great subject because you really want someone who, who does things differently or has a thing because, you know, I suspect there'll be some, although every team has their stories and, and, and their the, the sort of plot lines, I do think there's something where there is something going on in there. Bob Knight, was you know was a one of the most successful coaches in college basketball history, won several national championships. Like I said, was the Olympics coach. He was a thing. Bill Belichick is obviously a thing. That Ravens um, franchise, I think, always been a very interesting one because of mm. you know, the great, the great, the great defenses that they put together, the great characters they had, like Ray Lewis. But also, they always managed to stay relevant. The great success it seems to me in American football, the joy of it is those brilliant people who can more or less stay relevant year after year after year after year, which means you're pretty successful, so you're drafting low, but you're doing something that beats the game. You know, Bill mm-hmm. Belichick is the man who beats the game. He, that, that, that team should never have existed. It yeah, should it never have happen. stayed like this. It's probably never going to happen again. It's, I mean, it feels to me that, I mean, he may be the best coach ever, which I think he probably is. I can't see how he can make that team relevant now. I agree. I don't know if we will ever ever see it again. And, and, whether that's because Belichick is, is the greatest of all time, which I, I think is, there has to be an argument to suggest that he is. Um, and also, I think for the, for the very reason that you suggest that it's not just the coaching side of it, but also the, the identity of the team and the front office, the GM component of his role and how difficult it is to do that. Uh, and how well he's managed to achieve that. For such a sustained period of time, it segues beautifully. And we haven't, Stig, it's like we rehearsed this, but we really haven't. But that is, that is a book I'm going to chuck out. And I mentioned Halberstam right at the top with the uh, collection of American sports writing. His book, The Education of a Coach, uh, which is uh, all about uh, Belichick and, and Belichick's father, Steve Belichick. Is yeah. The Navy really, guy. Uh, yes, indeed. Exactly right. And uh, so many fascinating things here. The and some things unsurprising, other things, you know, the opposite. So the unsurprising elements of it, the the detail that Belichick applies in terms of studying film in particular, that that it kind of resonates through. That there are no shortcuts. Really, one of the reasons why Belichick is so good at what he does is because he has, from a very early age, formative age, needs to help his father, who was a scout, um, with with film and cutting film and, and putting film together. So it's been you know, ingrained in him and his deep understanding of the game comes from that level of commitment. And of course it's, it's, there's an obvious parallel there with the, the, the game collectively in terms of what he expects from players and understanding roles and, uh, very specific, uh, specific roles within schematically what he wants you to do, which is true of any NFL team and any playbook and any, and any team that is playing the game. But Belichick has such a coherence to his vision and identity, which is why he can take individual players who are washed up, who are not be particularly prolific elsewhere, who are maybe inferior athletically compared to some of their counterparts, but can 
flourish and thrive in in his systems because they there's a, such an innate understanding of what they're meant to do in this particular moment at this particular he's, time. He's, he's a great communicator in that way. He's also had been given the opportunity to control the whole franchise in a way that doesn't happen yep. in many other places. So that culture is absolutely ingrained everywhere. One of my favorite American football players of all time is Matthew Slater. Yes. Special teams yep. guy. I loved what he does after the games when they win, where he brings the players all together. His dad was a great player, but um, his, he is, is a small, not particularly fast, failed wide receiver yes. who plays only special teams, yep. but is culturally at the centre of that team. I can perfectly well believe that Bill Belichick will be able to create a whole bunch of nine-win teams forever because he won't beat himself. Everything will be coached really well. But the, I think if you boil the NFL down still. I know defences win championships and all that argument. You know, that Ravens team is a good example of it. They're going to have to look out on a quarterback, I think. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. without that, you can be as, you know, they've got some juggernauts in their division now. You know, the the, the Chiefs aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, I can't, I just, it feels to me that that, 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 it's obvious that the dynasty's over, but I'm not quite sure how you could get it even back because uh, they'll coach really well and they'll have good players. And like you say, they'll bring people up, but you still need, they need to have a, a star wide receiver, which they don't have now. Edelman is, 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 is too old probably. Um, and they need a star quarterback and they're not really close to getting either of them, it would seem at this point. And it's a, you're lucking out a quarterback is, is a great point you make as well, because you think about it, particularly in, and I know the salary cap is, is maybe diminished in how severe and, and difficult it is to navigate in recent years. But if you think about those teams that have literally lucked out on, on quarterbacks and the early on, and so I'm picking Dak Prescott for the Cowboys, uh, Russell Wilson, obviously in Seattle and the flexibility that gives you when you land a, a, a quarterback who becomes elite or near enough pretty quickly on a rookie deal. That's such a huge advantage, right? Um, oh, it's cra- and- crazily so. Crazy. And also, I saw this great stat the other day, uh, at, which was about the number of first-round quarterbacks that have hit. Actually, the number of Super Bowls won by first-round quarterbacks. And wow. I, think, I think there's Eli Manning. And I think in the last many years, that's it. So, so hang on. How many years is this? Are we going well, back? It's a whole chunk of years. I was trying to think of who. So, saying so, so Rogers, Rogers is is one. It's uh, a good question. So, who else? So, I'm just trying to think of who. It's also like there's like who been MVPs. Matt Ryan was an MVP. Was an MVP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was first round. Um, but not that many MVPs have come come out the first. I don't know. I don't Cam, know Cam, I guess was was Cam one. Was the, Cam was the other one. It was Cam and Matt Ryan were the two. What was Rogers drafted? Was he was he first round? First, first round, yeah. He just dropped down the first round, yeah. Maybe, but he kind of dropped yeah. to like early twenties, I think. Yeah, it might. They might have been drawing a distinction between the first ten. It might have been like the right, top, okay, top, top yeah, picks, yeah. How well yeah. top picks are done, uh, yeah, and actually, yeah. top picks have not done that as well as you'd think. So, not only is it hard to get a top pick, it's hard to get the right top pick, and then it's hard to put the right top pick into a team that's not awful, which is why it's got a top pick, and yeah, therefore, actually, yeah. um, you know, Russell Wilson was supposed to seem to be too small. And so he fell down the the, yeah. the the draft. And that was a lot about his character was why he was so good. He was seen to be too small. Brady was obviously too slow and non-athletic. Um, but they had something. But yeah, I, 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 I find the drafting, that's the other reason I love um, American sports so much is because there is structure to it. There is reason behind it. There is statistical evidence. Why I think actually the color commentary is better. It sends me mad if I'm watching England play football and someone scores a goal and then Gled Hoddle 
says over the top of the uh, uh, of the replay, oh, he's crossed it in and he's headed it in. And you go, well, I can see that, Rem Hoddle. I know a ball's got in and someone's headed it in. Tell me something <laughs> I don't know and I can't right. see because I've never played the game properly. And I, if you can trust, if you can trust Glenn Hoddle with Tony Romo, which is unfair because you're, you're a very bad commentator with a very good commentator, but it's the same principle. There is no one on British sport like Tony Romo. It's a great point. I wonder whether what Romo, what Romo has introduced is we're going to start to see more of that, uh, applied across, across all, all sports broadcasting where there is, you know, live analysis required and essentially calling the shots and whether, of course, you know, the NFL lends itself to that because you have this continual suspense, what's going to happen, the stop start nature, which is for those of us who love the game is great. For those who don't, they find it infuriating, but this idea of what's about to happen. I'm going to call it. And I've noticed that Romo's in heart, you know, refined that. I was going to say an answer, refined it since, you know, he, he realized he can't drop that every time because it will start to become a little annoying. bit one note and annoying. Yeah, exactly. So he, but he's, um, he's a, he's a brilliant broadcast. I was chatting funnily enough. This would have been not the, not the Miami Super Bowl, the one before after the game, um, and our respective broadcast, I was back at the hotel having a beer with, Chappers and J-Bell and Carlson was upstairs, I think, doing some radio, <laughs> radio hit. And, uh, OC had gone to bed. And so me, Chappers and J-Bell were having a kind of late night, late night beer after the game. And Chappers was talking about, he'd watched a, uh, or read or watched a, a program on Romo's preparation and focus. And we were discussing, again, going back to, going back to what we were saying and applying that to Belichick he said he was so unbelievably organized and detailed and this sense that of, of course he, you know, as a quarterback for 10 plus years that he played, he's one of, you know, he didn't win anything, but he's one of the best quarterbacks of his generation. Of course he's going to have that mental application or, or should anyway, when he's applying it to, to broadcasting and be, be so yeah, successful. I- and they're willing to pay him for it. That's the other thing at the moment. Right, so, right. You know, so he gets paid, well, he's just done a deal where he gets paid $20 million or something ridiculous like that. So he's better paid than some of the best paid players in the game. The one thing I always remember about Romo is that game where he was the, bizarrely, he was the holder for a kicker. Remember that? Yeah, that's and right. Yeah, yeah, in the playoffs. And he dropped it and they lost yep. the game on that. Yeah. That's kind of extraordinary now. I mean, again, for, for, for a sport that's based on specialism to the nth degree, yeah. endlessly, oh, cool. you need someone to hold the ball for the most yeah. important points of the game. Oh, your quarterback, your starting yeah. quarterback, you're paying them millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, I, we are going off on too many tangents, so yeah. I'll, uh, I'll let you take center stage now. Just a final point on the Halberstam education of a coach. It's about Belichick and his father and their relationship. And, and uh, one of the things, the real takeaways, interesting things for me, I've mentioned on this pod uh, before, I think, is Steve Belichick, his father, who was obviously a, a seminal influence. And there is, and Halberstam doesn't, isn't crass enough to make a, a, a trite comparison or an, or an obvious comparison, but inevitably people are looking at Bill Belichick and we just suggested he might be the greatest coach of all time. He probably is. He's definitely in, you know, in, in the conversation. He's more successful than his father. That's the kind of, he, he's gone on and achieved more. And he, and in, in, in many respects, he has, he's obviously achieved more with the, in terms of the success in the professional game. But one of the points Halberstam makes, Dig, is that Steve Belichick had these opportunities to go on from scouting into a coaching capacity and, but he didn't want to do it because he loved being a scout and that's what he wanted yeah. to do. And it, it really emphasized to me this, 
the importance of understanding what makes you happy because there is then whether you apply this to football and the better checks or but whatever you're doing so much of the time there is uh pressure there is widespread acceptance that for you to be considered a success and to achieve you've got to keep on moving on and keep on moving up yeah. and it isn't that simple and life isn't that simple and if sometimes if you find something that you love doing even if it you're not the headline act and it isn't you're not glittering success and look at all if you're happy and that's what you want to do then roll with it and it was steve belichick seemingly had a real surety of uh of what he was doing was what he wanted to do and he was bloody good at it uh, well, you can make a case in that that this is again tangent i'll shut up after this but just to say that the world is cursed by over promotion and mm. you see it in every walk of life you see it in sport where someone who's a good player becomes a manager. Why? The, the, two, the two skills are completely unrelated. You see it in mm. journalism. Someone who's a good reporter gets made an editor and they're having to manage loads of people. Why? The two skills are completely, they're not only um, uh, a different thing, they're completely unconnected. There's no reason why someone who is good at, uh, good at kicking a ball will be good at motivating other people to kick a ball. It's mm. just, it, uh, and yet we're constantly seeing, and you see it in politics as well. People who might be perfectly good MPs become Chancellor of the Exchequer and they can't, they can't, they can't cope with it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's a great lesson is that it, it's very hard to know your level because you might be too modest or you might be too, um, um, uh, too conceited. It's very hard to accurately know where your level is. And if someone has got Zen-like achieved that, like Steve Belichick, that's a great thing. Right. Let's roll on. Okay. Uh, Should I do some really you die, You just drive on. Drive okay. on. Baseball is a good place to go. Okay, I'm losing baseball books. Um, uh, there's three I want to, to mention. First one is, if people ignore everything else I say, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do, <laughs> uh, I want to just give the name of Roger Angel, who, to my mind, is the greatest sports writer of all time. And he writes, he's been writing, he's in his 90s, he's still alive. He's been writing for the, for the New Yorker uh, since the 60s. Um, and what he does is he writes about baseball he writes beautifully about baseball. What they've given him, might not even be the New York writer, it's in all his books anyway. They give him at the end of each season, for example, 10,000 words to write about the playoffs. And he does game reports about the playoffs or he does spring training. Spring training to me is one of the great institutions in the whole world. This idea of exoticism and familiarity, I would love to spend a month in either uh, Florida or Arizona at spring training. The sounds of the game, the feels yes. of the game, the smells yeah. of the game. This is what Roger Angel, he's like a poet of the smells and feel and touch of baseball. And he's been writing for half a century. He's got millions of books out there, which are basically chronological collections of his journalism. There's one called Game Time, which is like a best of, but there's one called Five Seasons, which is about five seasons in the 70s. Some of his pieces have become legendary. So he wrote about Bob Gibson, the great 1960s uh, Cardinals pitcher, who was one of the great pitchers of all time. So good. His ERA was one point. One two, I think, in 1968, he was so good they made wow. they changed the rules of baseball they, <laughs> they, uh, because pitchers won too much in that year, and he was the example of it. And they lowered the mound and they uh, they reduced the strike zone for 1969 because he'd been too good at baseball. And he was a uh, like all these things always about more than sport. So whenever you're talking about a black athlete in America, now it's true. It was even more true in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It's always about more than sport. It's about things like social justice it's about race relations it's about american history again i i, I haven't grown up in, in american culture but to, to know what it would take to be a black athlete like bob Gunn in 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 more or less south of america being a d 
determined, resolute pitcher. At a time when he would have started his career, yeah. he would have been, he'd have gone to hotels where he'd have had to go into a different entrance or he'd have had to go to a different hotel completely. He was also a Harlem Globetrotter uh, before he became a baseball player, which I think is magnificent. But anyway, so he wrote about him, <laughs> but he also wrote about um, Steve Blass, who was a pitcher, uh, who is he for, from Pittsburgh Pirates, I think. And he got the yes. And, yeah, and yeah, so that's a great piece. There's a definitive piece about the yips, which is magnificent. So, honestly, if you love baseball in the way that it's that slightly languorous, summer-drenched sport, which gives you time to think, Roger Angel is the great person to read about. And so I think I'd recommend him entirely. We talked about access um, before, where journalists get access to it. Uh, Jim Booten, I think it's pronounced, wrote a book called mm. Ball Four, which is really famous in America. He was a pitcher for Seattle when it became, a, I think it be, when it was an expansion franchise, he also pitched for the Yankees. And it was life and what it's like genuinely as a pitcher. And it shocked a lot of people in the 60s because it talked about sex and swearing and drinking and drug taking. Uh, mm. But it remains a kind of very viscerally honest account of what it's like to be an athlete. Uh, it's a great book. And my other baseball recommendation is a novel. And it's the first 100 pages or maybe 50 pages of Don Villalo's Underworld, which has the, uh, an account of the shot heard across the world, which was the uh, uh, one-game playoff uh, um, with uh, Ralph Branker as the pitcher. Bobby Thompson hit it, and it was the Dodgers versus the Giants in the polo grounds in New York, 1951. And Don DeLillo starts his mammoth, very beautifully elegant, difficult underworld book, which is a huge book, but the first 50 pages are an account of that moment, the shot heard around the world. And it's just this magnificent piece of American literature writing, just a phenomenal piece of writing. And about it is, it is a, one of my favorite pieces of writing. So I'm so glad that you, you, you had it on your list. It was originally published. Well, was it, was it originally published separately what? as an, is that right? And then, and so you used it as the intro. It is an absolutely brilliant piece of writing. And, and if anything, any of the things that Stig and I have been talking about today in terms of our love of American sports and why as Brits, if any of that resonates with you, then uh, just, it, 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 again, if nothing else that you read uh, from any of the things we've talked about, just read either the Tate and the Vela, which is uh, a separate name is Pafco at the Wall, it was released as, um, or even better, as Stig says, buy the whole book because it is uh, uh, one of the great novels of, uh, of the uh, 20th century, I think and read the whole thing. It is a searingly good piece of writing and absolutely chimes with so many of the things that, that we've talked about today. So yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great choice, a great shout. Um, why do you think baseball works so well and writing about baseball works so well in the same way that, that I guess, and we were talking about British sports writing and the differences cricket as well, I think has that, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a list, uh, a collection of books on uh, a shelf in front of me, Neville Cardis. There are a couple of those that, you know, who was a, a very prolific and, and influential cricket writer. And th there are so many good examples of strong cricket writing. Why do you think baseball lends itself so well to, to good writing? I think it's because it's a, um, I think it's because it, it, it's symbolic with America. It's the national game. Uh, it is drenched in Americana. And so it, it's about more than itself. It's not just a sport. It's a kind of a pillar of the culture. I think it's, it's, it's pacing. It's over a whole, you know, it starts in February and ends in October. 
It's a whole year almost. There's 162 games in the main season. So it's a bit like life in that it's always there. It goes up and down. Uh, I think that American football is, is very punchy. It's the 16 games. It's very commercialized. It's very slick. Basketball, I think, is, is probably similar in, in a certain way. But baseball is, I think, pitched at the rhythm, or it was, maybe less so now. I think in the time when it's often been written about, it was pitched into the rhythms of daily existence. And like you said, it worked well on radio. So before TV was there, it was enmeshed in the culture. So it's, it's absolutely pinioned into the culture. Its rhythms are, 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 are sort of elongated. And I think that, and the same way that was probably true of cricket. And also the summer, the summer, you know, yeah. the summeriness of baseball. You know, American football is played in the cold. Basketball is played inside in the cold. Uh, ice hockey is played in the cold inside when it's hot. Um, but it's, so it stands for something, doesn't it? It's something elegiac about baseball because it's the summers we've all missed or the summers we've had. It's nostalgic. It's it, it and I think that's why people write well about it. The nostalgia, yeah, for sure, is is a key part of that. Okay, some great great suggestions there. Where else uh, are we going on your list? All right, I'm going to be really quick. Uh, the great one of the great bits of writing boxing. Boxing again, another good example, I think, of a sport that people write well about because it's gladiatorial. It's, uh, it's, it's absolutely distillation of a, of a, of a one-on-one contest. So I think people write well about it. Norman Mailer's The Fight, uh, The Rumble in the Jungle, uh, mm. with Foreman Ali is just a great book. It's just so enjoyable, even if you know the outcome, uh, to see how Ali wins that fight when he really shouldn't have done. Mailer is his own character in the book. What's going on in Zaire is, is fascinating. So it's got, it's about politics. Uh, it's also about the most charismatic person of the 20th century, perhaps. Um, and it's Norman Mailer at a time when Norman Mailer was writing really well. Norman Mailer writes often very badly and uh, obsessively and quickly and self-indulgently. And but I think that the sheer sort of force of Ali's personality sort of just held him in check throughout this book and the tension in it, I think it comes from that. And I think that's a... Uh, uh, lots of people have read it, but I think that's one of the great sports books ever. Speaking of uh, force of personality, you've got the Jeff Perlman book, Boys Will Be Boys on your list, haven't you? Which is um, an extraordinary era. I actually paired it with a book by a guy called Rob Heisinger Jr. It's okay, it's just a bruise, which is about mm. um, American football and the doctors who had to treat people. And both books, actually, both of them, I read those books. And then weirdly, I saw the Al Pacino American football movie. Yes, yeah, yeah. And a lot of the information that comes in that book, in those books, appears in the film. I think they use those books uh, uh, pretty closely in the making of the film. There's little bits where a guy is uh, taking um, drugs uh, and suddenly gets diarrhea and the doctor has to follow him and stand behind him in the stall as he (laughs) has the gushing diarrhea, uh, which I I, I read in one of those books and then I saw in the movie. Um, and so I, I think Oliver uh, Stone's read them both is what yeah, we I, 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 I think that's probably right. But yeah, but that sort of that sort of massively crazy, colourful world of of the ridiculousness of American sport. I think that Perlman book. I don't know what sort of quality of writer he is. But it's a very good. It's a very exciting book. Well, that the Cowboys team, and you mentioned that you know, brilliantly successful with Aikman and Emmett Smith and and uh, Michael Irvin. Irvin. Um, did uh came over and did one of the the cowboys games over here you know a few years back and was in 
I think it was in the Channel 4 days before uh, those games moved to the Beeb and Carlson. So I'm trying to think if, if OC, I don't think OC was in that one, uh, but Carlson will remember. And, and Irvin was on unbelievable form. I mean, you meet, you meet this guy and, it, you know, and that is, he's transitioned into a broadcaster. And I'm sure a lot of you listening right now will have, will have seen his broadcast work. And he is exactly like that when the cameras aren't rolling. There are players that I've uh, worked with and not even players, just, you know, uh, actors, musicians who come into Stig, you'll know this as well with your shows who kind of rock in and it's not a knock on them, but they are just very different. The moment the light comes on, they come on. And when they're not, uh, the light isn't on and you're making small talk and just hang it around. It's a slightly different personality. And that, that's fair enough. Irvin is like that the whole, the whole time <laughs> in those things where he rock up and you're in the booth for a few, for a few breaks from the game, right? With us in the studio, I should say, and you go back to the game and you come back. When Irvin was on camera with us in the studio, absolutely, you know, a, a spinal tap to 11 style. And then we go back to the game. He'd just be like the whole time watching the I game. That. I mean, uh, just he, a force of nature, as you And said. he was, he, hey, I, Mike's got three fiction books. Cool. It was a, an area that, um, that we've all, all the books we've talked about have been non-fiction, right, with the exception of, of Delio. So, uh, here are three others, and Delio's got one of them. End Zone is what on his list. Yeah, um, great, love that book. That's about nuclear uh, war, isn't it? As well, uh, I will. T- I haven't read it. I haven't read it, so I'll take your take your word for it. Um, North Dallas Forty. I have. Mike bought that for me years ago as a prezi, um, and uh, a great movie as well. And then A Fan's Note was his first by Fred Exley. A Fan's Note. Mm. You come across that one? No, I haven't. There you go. That's good. Well, can I throw can I throw two more fiction books? Richard Ford. Let's do it. Richard Ford wrote a book called The Sports Writer, mm. about a guy called Frank Bascom, who is a sports writer in the first book. He goes on to do two more books. One's called Independence Day. One's called The Lair of the Land. And some people think they are as good as the rabbit books by John Updike. Uh, and so they are great American literature of the 20th century. But the first book is about a sports writer. So Richard Ford, sports writer, is worth reading. And what was the other one I was going to, to do who was a... I had another fiction, and I'll, I'll come back to it. But Richard Ford, the sports writer, is definitely, definitely worth, definitely worth reading. Brilliant. Um, we are pushing. It's a shame. It's, we've got to do this again. We'll have to do more of these, and uh, we will definitely, uh, definitely be having you back for more general football chat as well. Though I feel like we've covered quite a lot, a lot of that ground as well. I'll throw a few at you from our listeners, Dig, before we go. Um, Lovely, uh, because we've had a great response here as well. So. Uh, and I particularly props to uh, listeners like Reese who have taken photos of the books as well, which is good. So we'll try and retweet as many of these out uh, too. Speaking of Jeff Perlman, he wrote a book on Walter Payton's sweetness. It's called The Enigmatic Life of Walter Payton. Oh, yeah, uh, there is uh, one about the Bruce Arians wrote with a ghost writer, it looks like, uh, How to Build an Elite NFL Quarterback, The Quarterback Whisperer, it's called. I haven't, uh, haven't read that, actually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add that to my list, Reese. I like that. Um, and Dennis Leary, uh, one of... Uh, I was only chatting to Ollie, our producer, about Dennis Leary last night, Stig. Uh, the best yeah. football book ever is uh, his quote, which is emblazoned on the, the front page. So oh, I'll, I'll uh, give that a go. I'll give that a go as well. Yeah, it's cute. See, we're all learning and taking things out of it. And that's the point, isn't it, that we need to use these times right now, Stig, to, to enrich our minds a little bit. And uh, you have really helped us do that. Are there any more that I've uh, just cut you off on that you want to sneak in before we get out of, uh, get out of Dodge? No, I'll do. Well, I'm not done a basketball one, so I will say Bill Simmons's "The Book of Basketball" is right. 
about 700 pages long, where he basically ranks every basketball player ever, is a real, that's a real good bath book, you know, because you can spend like 10 minutes reading it. <laughs> uh, you need him. Yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, and I think you're right. Look, people shouldn't beat themselves up. This is a time, like you said, there's a bit more time, but if you've got kids, you've got a stressful job, you're worried about things, it's not that easy to read Proust or to learn Arabic or to do anything like that. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah, actually yeah. think that there's no sport to watch, which is a great escape for a lot of us. So reading about sports, I think is a, you know, we all need escapes and that's probably why we love sports so much. And I do think some of the things we've talked about these books are good places to head off to when, when the real world gets a bit too much. Beautifully put. Stig, it's great catching up with you, man. It's been too long. And well, uh, congratulations on everything. So I mentioned in your intro, you're anchoring Front Row, of course, which is a, a seminal show and, and the Times Literary Supplement as well. You've been very busy uh, running that too. Uh, what else are you up to? I mean, if you've got time for anything else. No, well, I've got a book out uh, in November, which is called uh, Things I Learned on the 628, and it's a commuter's guide to reading. So I read, basically last year I read for an hour of a day all different sorts of books. So it's a guide to a whole, all of literature in all its different forms. It's my guide to that. So I've been writing Great that. Great idea. Um, Things I Learned on the 628, and that's out later on this year. Later on this year. Later can you pre-order it yet from Amazon? I think you probably can, actually. There's no cover or anything. It does exist. I have written it. So it's, you know, <laughs> I it's believe you. I believe yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, but isn't that, on a serious note, I look, I, I've loved all the stuff you've done. Uh, you know, you're part of that chain of people who brought American sport to this country. So, you know, I, and I can, you know, Mike's the same. Uh, and so you've enriched my life. All of you lot have uh, over the years because you've helped get me back into American sport. And that's really important to me now. Oh, thank you, man. That is a really appreciate that. And yeah, if we're getting people into, into things that they once loved and forgot for a bit and are back into, then, then all the better for it. And, uh, and it's been great kind of doing a, a bit of a memory lane chat as well. I think so many of our listeners will resonate with that, whether they are, you know, new generation, whether they are our age, whether they're older than us, whenever they first fell in love with the game, it's good to try and find that, find that memory and, uh, uh, and uh, and cherish it because it, those are great and important times. It's been really good to catch up with you, man. Look after yourself um, you in these strange old times and come back soon, I hope. Come back and talk more sports with us soon. Will do. That's all from us for now, but don't forget we are coming thick and fast. Marek Lawood, the comedian in the house for this Thursday show. Really looking forward to catching up with him. He is involved with a brilliant youtube series at the moment which uh well i won't spoil it we'll get married to tell you all about it on thursday so looking forward to that we'll see you then bye for now sports social podcast network